Section 108 of The Mysteries of London, Volume 3. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Mysteries of London, Volume 3, by George W. M. Reynolds. Section 108. A State of Siege. Return we now to Frank Curtis, his excellent wife and Captain O'Blunderbuss, who were living in a complete state of siege at the house in Baker Street. The captain was the commandant of the garrison and superintended all the maneuvers and the devices which it was necessary to adopt to keep out the enemy. The front door was constantly chained inside, and every time there was a knock or a ring, John the footman reconnoitred from the area. Whenever anyone was compelled to go out to order in provisions, the captain stood at the door armed with the kitchen poker, and looking so grim and terrible that the officers who were prowling about in different disguises dared not hazard an encounter with the warlike gentleman. The grocer, the butcher, and the baker lowered their respective commodities down the area by means of a rope and basket provided for the purpose, but they all took very good care to receive the cash first. The milkman and potboy were unable to supply their articles through the opening afforded by the door with the chain up inside and they likewise strenuously advocated the ready-money principle. The condition of siege was a source of great delight to Captain O'Blunderbuss. He was completely in his element. Little cared he for the opinion of neighbors. His feelings were by no means concerned. The house from the first moment he set foot in it was in a state of perpetual excitement. He was constantly ordering the servants to do something or another, a dozen times a day did he perform what he called going his rounds, armed with the poker in case a bailiff should have crept into the place through some unguarded avenue. And it was indeed with the greatest difficulty that Mrs. Curtis could divert him from a plan which he had conceived, and which he declared to be necessary, namely, the drilling of all the inmates of the house, male and female, including the five children, for an hour daily in the yard. As it was, he compelled John the footman to mount sentry in the yard aforesaid every morning, while the housemaid was dusting her carpets and so forth. Indeed, during the whole time that the domestic duties rendered it necessary to have the back door open. If John remonstrated, the captain would threaten with terrible oaths to try him by a court-martial. And once, when the poor fellow respectfully solicited his wages and his discharge, the formidable officer would certainly have inflicted on him the cat-o'-nine-tails, if the cook had not begged him off, she being the footman's sweetheart. Mrs. Curtis took a great fancy to the captain, and allowed him to do pretty well as he chose. She considered him to be the politest, genteelest, bravest, and most amusing gentleman she had ever known, and it soon struck her that his various qualifications threw her husband considerably into the shade. Whenever she felt low-spirited, he had a ready remedy for her. If it were in the forenoon, he would exclaim, Arrah and be Jesus, Mim, it's no wonder ye dull, with the enemy besaging us in this way, and it's a nice mutton-chop and a glass of port wine that'll be after setting ye to rights, Mim. Then forthwith he would ring the bell and order three chops, so that himself and Frank might keep the dear lady company. If it were in the evening that Mrs. Curtis was attacked by those unwelcome visitors termed Blue Devils, the captain would recommend a little drop of the poteen, brewed after the fashion in old Ireland, and while he exhausted all his powers of eloquence and assurances that it should be as wake as wather and not too sweet, 
he would mix the respectable lady such a stinger that her eyes would fill with tears every time she put the glass near her lips. Sometimes he would undertake to amuse the children up in the nursery by going on all fours and allowing them to play at horse-soldiers by riding on his back. And then, what with his shouting and bawling and their laughing and screaming, it was enough to alarm the whole neighborhood, and very frequently did. All these little attentions on the part of the captain, either to herself or her children, gave Mrs. Curtis an admirable opinion of him, and he rose rapidly in her favor. His success in obtaining the five hundred pounds from Sir Christopher Blunt was considered by her as sublime a stroke of mingled policy and daring as ever was accomplished, and his tactics in opposing a successful foil to all the stratagems devised by the sheriff's officers to obtain admission into the dwelling made her declare more than once that had he commanded the Allied army at Waterloo, it would have been all up with the French in half an hour. The female servants in the house did not altogether admire the position in which they were placed, but they were so dreadfully frightened at the captain that they never uttered a murmur in his hearing. They moreover had their little consolations, for Sir Christopher's five hundred pounds enabled the besieged to live, as the captain declared, like fighting cocks so that the kitchen was as luxuriously supplied with provender as the parlour, and no account was taken of the quantity of wine and spirits consumed in the establishment. We have before hinted that the house was a perfect nuisance in Baker Street, and no wonder indeed that it should have been so considered, for it seemed to be the main source whence emanated all the frightful noises that could possibly alarm nervous old ladies or irritate gouty old gentlemen. No sooner did the day dawn than Captain O'Blunderbuss would fling up the window of his bedroom, which was at the back of the house, with a crashing violence that made people think he was mad, and thrusting forth his head with a white nightcap upon it, he would roar out, John! John! Two arms! As lustily as he could bawl! This was not only to save himself the trouble of repairing to the footman's chamber to summon him, but also for the purpose of letting the sheriff's officers, if any in the neighborhood, know that he was on the alert. Then John would poke his head out of another window and answer the captain's call, and a few minutes afterwards the back door would open and shut with a terrific bang, and John would be seen to sally forth to mount sentry in the yard with shouldered poker. Then an hour's interval of comparative silence would prevail while the captain turned in again to take another nap, but at length up would go the window again, out would come the head, and John, hot water, would roll an awful reverberation throughout the entire neighborhood. The confusion and dismay produced by these alarms were terrific, and the neighbors all threatened their landlords to give warning on the next quarter. For it was not only in the morning that the noise prevailed, but throughout the entire day, aye, and the best part of the night also. Sometimes the captain would take it into his head to discharge his pistols in the yard, or else he would have a fencing match with Frank Curtis, the weapons being pokers, which made a hideous clang. Then there were the rows in the nursery, which were truly awful and by way of a variety Captain O'Blunderbuss would occasionally show himself at the drawing-room windows, and vociferate the most appalling abuse at any suspicious characters, whom he might happen to behold prowling about. These exhibitions frequently collected crowds in front of the house, and the captain would harangue them with as much earnestness as if he were a candidate at a general election. On one of these occasions the parish beadle made his appearance, and from the pavement remonstrated with the gallant officer who kept him in parlance until Frank Curtis had time to empty a pitcher of water over the enraged functionary from the front bedroom window. 
but the worst part of the whole business consisted in the goings-on at night-time. Just when sedate and quiet people were getting cosily into their first sleep at about eleven o'clock, Mr. Frank Curtis was getting uncommonly drunk, and though the captain seemed proof against the effects of alcohol, no matter in what quantity imbibed, he nevertheless grew trebly and quadruply uproarious when under the influence of poteen. Thus from eleven to twelve the shouts of laughter, the yells of delight, the cries of mirth, and the vociferations of boisterous hilarity, which came from the front parlour, made night perfectly hideous, but no amount of human patience ever possessed by good and forgiving neighbours could possibly tolerate the din and disturbance which prevailed during the small hours. Then would the captain and his friend Curtis rush like madmen into the yard, shouting, roaring, and bawling like demons, so that the residents in the adjacent houses leapt from their beds and threw up their windows in horror and alarm, expecting to find the whole street in a blaze. These performances on the part of Frank and O'Blunderbuss were intended to show the officers that they were upon the alert, and that they not only had the desired effect, but accomplished far more, inasmuch as they produced an absolute panic throughout an entire neighborhood. Thus it was that Mr. Curtis's abode, lately so serene and quiet in the time of Mrs. Goldberry, became a perfect nuisance and a scandal, and had Bedlam in its very worst days been located there, the noise and alarm could not have been greater. It will be remembered that the captain's plan, when first he took up his residence in Baker Street, was to get Mr. and Mrs. Curtis and the children away on a Sunday night, and sell off all the furniture on the Monday morning. But this scheme was postponed at first for one week, then for another, because the officers kept such a constant lookout that the captain saw the necessity of standing the siege, until the creditors should be completely wearied of paying those disagreeable spies to watch the premises. This determination was the more readily come to inasmuch as the five hundred pounds obtained from Sir Christopher Blunt supplied sinews to carry on the war in grand style. When the captain paid the second financial visit to the worthy knight with a view to the effecting of a further loan on the assignat which himself and Frank Curtis had resolved to issue, it was not because money was scarce in Baker Street, but simply because the captain admired the fun of the thing, and also considered it prudent to raise as ample a supply of bullion as possible. The rage which he experienced at his discomfiture on this occasion can be better conceived than described, and firmly believing that it was Sir Christopher himself who had dealt him from the carriage window the tremendous blow which sent him sprawling on the pavement in a most ignominious manner, he vowed the most deadly vengeance against the new justice of the peace. Picking himself up as well as he could, for the gallant gentleman was sorely bruised, he repaired to the nearest public-house to cool himself, as he said in his own mind, with a tumbler of the invariable poteen, and having reflected upon the insult which he had received, he thought it best not to communicate his dishonour and discomfiture on his return to Baker Street. Accordingly, having returned to the garrison into which he effected an easy entry, for no one dared approach the door when it opened to give him egress or ingress, he assured Mr. and Mrs. Curtis that the night was out of town and would not be back for a week. However, in a couple of days the wonderful adventures of Sir Christopher Blunt and Dr. Lascelles burst upon the metropolis like a tempest, and as the morning newspapers were duly dropped down the area of the besieged dwelling in Baker Street, the entire report was read aloud by Frank Curtis at the breakfast-table. It therefore being evident that Sir Christopher was not only in town at that moment, but was likewise in London when the captain had called upon him, the gallant gentleman affected to fly into a violent rage, swearing that the knight was denied to him on purpose, 
and vowing to make him repint of his ungentlemanly conduct. A blunderbuss did not, however, in his heart mean to do any such thing as call again in German Street, for he had despaired of inducing the knight, either by threatenings or coaxings, to advance a further supply, and now that the worthy gentleman was a justice of the peace, the captain thought that it would be somewhat imprudent to visit him for the mere sake of committing an assault and battery. He accordingly invented divers excuses day after day for remaining in the garrison, and as funds were abundant no one urged him to undertake another financial mission to Sir Christopher Blunt. The reader must remember that Messrs. McGrab and Proggs were very roughly handled by Captain O'Blunderbuss when they visited the house in Baker Street for the purpose of arresting Mr. Frank Curtis, and the honour of a sheriff's officer being particularly dear to its possessor, these worthies considered theirs to be at stake unless they fully vindicated it by capturing the aforesaid Mr. Curtis in the long run. They therefore had recourse to all kinds of devices to obtain an entry into the house, being armed not only with a writ against that gentleman's person on behalf of Mr. Beeswing, but also with an execution against the furniture at the instigation of another of Mrs. Curtis's creditors. The tricks practised by these worthies to obtain an entry into the besieged domicile were as varied as they were ludicrous. On one occasion Mr. Proggs, dressed for the nonce as a butcher, and carrying a leg of mutton in a tray on his shoulder, hurried up to the door, gave the loud, sharp, single knot peculiar to the trade, and shouted, to chur in the most approved style. But the parlour window was thrown up, and out popped the head of the ferocious O'Blunderbuss, the countenance as red as a turkey-cock, and the mouth vomiting forth a torrent of abuse, so that a discomforted Mr. Proggs was compelled to retreat with all the ignominy of a baffled strategist. On another occasion Mr. McGrab, attired as a general postman, rushed along the street, stopped at the door of the besieged house, gave the two clear rapid strokes with the knocker, and immediately began to look over a bundle of letters with all the feverish haste of the functionary whose semblance he had assumed. But John came forth from the area, and again was the sheriff's officer's object completely frustrated. Next day, however, two sweeps appeared in the street as black as if they had never known soap and water, and were accustomed to lodge, eat, and sleep in chimneys as well as cleanse them. But upon arriving opposite the parlour windows, they beheld the captain and Frank Curtis taking sights at them, the two gentlemen having twigged the traps without much difficulty. Thus defeated in all their endeavours to accomplish their aims by cunning, Messrs. McGrab and Proggs worked themselves up to the desperate resolution of using force, and they accordingly took their post at the front door of Curtis's house with the apparent determination to rush in the first time it should be opened but when it was opened as far as the chain inside would permit, and they beheld to their horror and dismay the terrible captain wielding the poker, they exhibited that better part of valour which is denominated discretion. At last, however, they could no longer endure the jeerings of their friends exercising the same agreeable and lucrative profession, and moreover, the attorneys who employed them in the Baker Street affair spoke out pretty plainly about gentlemen bribing bailiffs not to execute writs, and so forth. All these circumstances induced Mr. McGrab and his man Proggs to hold a council of war over two fourpennyworths of rum and water, and the result was a determination that as the various devices and the stratagems they had practised to enter the dwelling had failed, and as they feared to carry it by storm, the stronghold must be reduced by a surprise. It was on the very evening when the Blackamoor experienced so strange an adventure at Carlton House that the following scene took place in Baker Street. The clock had struck ten, 
and supper being disposed of, the whiskey, hot water, glasses, and etceteras were placed upon the table, at which Frank Curtis, his amiable wife, and Captain O'Blunderbuss were seated, as comfortable a trio as you could wish or expect to see, especially under such adverse circumstances. "'John,' vociferated the captain, as the domestic was about to leave the room, "'stop a moment, you rogue, and answer me this. "'Is the area all safe?' "'Yes, sir,' was the ready response. "'And the kitchen windows, and the back door, "'and the yard gate, all right, eh, John?' "'All right, captain, I've just been the rounds. "'And all the provisions in the garrison, John?' "'Plenty of poteen,' demanded O'Blunderbuss. "'Plenty, sir.' There'll be no more going out again to-night. That's a blessing, exclaimed the gallant captain. John! Yes, sir. Take a glass of whiskey, mate, and slape with the kitchen poker under your pillow, my friend. Enjoined the officer. We must be armed at all points, be Jesus. I shan't forget, sir, said John, and having tossed off the spirit, he quitted the room. Now then, to make ourselves cosy, observed the captain, drawing his chair a little closer to Mrs. Curtis, Pray, Mim, how do you feel your dear self this evening? Is it in good spirits ye are, Mim? Thank you, Captain, returned Mrs. Curtis. I am quite well, but the least, least thing nervous. This strange kind of life we're leading. Strange, Mim, ejaculated the Captain. It's glorious. Glorious indeed, cried Frank. I only wish the Marquis of Shoreditch was here along with us. How he would enjoy himself. "'You will permit me, Mim,' said the captain, grasping the bottle of whiskey and addressing the lady in an insinuating manner. "'Now, really, captain, if I must take a very leetle drop,' began Mrs. Curtis with a simper. "'Well, my dear madam, it shall be the leetlest drop in the world, and so wake that a baby of a month old might drink it and never so much as thrip up as it walked across the room,' exclaimed O'Bunderbuss, whose knowledge of the physical capacities of infants was evidently somewhat vague and limited.' There, Mim, he added, placing before the lady a large tumbler, the contents of which were equal portions of spirit and water. You may tell me I'm a Dutchman and unworthy of old Ireland, if that isn't the prettiest drink I've ever brewed for one of the fair six. You're very kind, Captain, said Mrs. Curtis, in a mincing, simpering manner. It's you that's kind to say so, Mim, remarked the Captain, placing his foot close to that of the lady and ascertaining by the readiness with which she returned the pedal pressure that the tender intimation he wished thereby to convey was by no means unwelcome. Frank did not, of course, notice what was going on under the table, and the conversation progressed in the usual manner, the captain and Frank vying with each other in telling the most monstrous lies, and the silent interchange of love's tokens continuing with increasing warmth between the gallant gentleman and the stout lady. Mrs. Curtis's spirits, however, seemed to require a more than ordinary amount of stimulant on this occasion. She declared herself to be very low, although she contrived to laugh a great deal at the captain's lively sallies and marvellous stories. But as the clock struck midnight and she rose to retire to her chamber, she found that the three glasses of toddy which she had been persuaded to imbibe had somewhat unsettled the gravity of her equilibrium. The captain sprang from his seat to open the parlour door for her, and as he bade her good night, she pressed his hand with a degree of tenderness which, as novel writers say, spoke volumes. Curthis, my friend, said the captain as he returned to his seat, be the holy poker. You possess a rail jewel of a wife. She's the most amiable lady I ever knew, and takes her poteen without any nonsense, be Jove. 
She's an ornament in a gentleman's household, and will drink her health in a bumper. With all my heart, exclaimed Frank, already more than half seas over. But I say, Captain, do you know that I'm getting very tired of the life we're leading? I wish we could put an end to it somehow or other. Be the powers, and that's the very thing I was going to recommend to ye, Frank, cried the Captain, who was more affected by liquor on this particular night than ever he had been before since the first moment he had taken up his abode in Baker Street. But how can it be done? hiccuped Curtis. It is how the thing's to be done, cried O'Blunderbuss. Can't ye now bolt off to France tomorrow night and lave me in charge of the house? I'll manage to sell every stick to a broker, and then it's myself that'll bring over the wife, the children, and the money to ye, safe as if they were all my own. I don't like the idea of going away alone, Captain, observed Frank as he refilled his tumbler. But suppose we talk the matter over tomorrow when we've slept off the effects of the toddy. Be Jesus, the toddy has no effect upon me, exclaimed O'Blunderbuss, who nevertheless sat very unsteadily in his chair, his body swaying to and fro, in spite of all his efforts to the contrary. The conversation now languished, but the drinking was maintained until Frank Curtis suddenly fell from his seat in a vain attempt which he made to reach the whiskey bottle. The captain burst out into a roar of laughter, and while endeavouring to pick up his companion, rolled completely over him. He, however, managed, by means of many desperate efforts, to place the young gentleman upon the sofa, where he left him to repose in peace and taking up a candle he staggered out of the room muttering to himself, Be the powers, if I didn't know that it was impossible, I should say that I was drunk. This was a conclusion which the captain was by no means willing to admit, and in order to convince himself that he was perfectly sober and knew what he was about, he proceeded to examine the front door according to his invariable custom ere retiring to rest. Well, be the powers, he murmured, as he stood contemplating the door with all the vacancy of inebriation. It's John that's a clever fellow. After all, be Jesus, and it's two chains he's put up, and two bolts at the top, and two bolts at the bottom. And be the holy poker, exclaimed the captain aloud, his face expanding with the expression of stupid joy. The house is safe enough, for there's two doors. Supremely happy at having made this discovery, and moreover fancying himself to be lighted by two candles, in a word, seeing double in every respect, the gallant officer staggered along the passage and commenced the ascent of the staircase, which appeared to have become wondrously steep, rickety, and uneven. Stumbling at every step and muttering awful imprecations against the thunderous fool of a carpenter that had built such a devil of a lather, Captain O'Blunderbuss contrived to reach the first landing in safety but his foot tripping over the carpet he fell flat down extinguishing the light of the candle, though at the same time giving his head such a knock against the balustrades that a million meteoric sparks flashed across his visual organs. Blood and hounds, growled the gallant gentleman, there must either be an earthquake or else be the powers I'm really drunk. Picking himself up, the captain groped about for the staircase and finding it with some little trouble, he continued his ascent in a pleasing state of uncertainty as to whether he were walking on his head or on his feet, but with the deeply settled conviction that he was spinning round at a most terrific rate. Captain O'Blunderbuss, he said, apostrophizing himself as he staggered along, is this rally you or another person? If it's yourself it is, I'm, 
I'm ashamed of ye, be the holy poker. And I've a precious good mind to give you a decent drubbing, Captain. Oh, blunderbuss. Thus soliloquizing, the martial gentleman reached the second landing, but here he paused for a few minutes in a state of awful doubt as to which way he should turn in order to reach his own room. He knew that his door must be somewhere close at hand, though whether to the right or to the left he could not for the life of him remember. At length he began to grope about at a venture, and having encountered the handle of a door he hesitated no longer, but entered the chamber with which the said door communicated. End of section 108. Recording by Philip Gould.